Hi, my name is Ben Atkinson and welcome to the Functional Health Podcast. I interview some of the leading voices in nutrition and lifestyle medicine and I will share with you their stories, their expertise and their advice, shedding light on the industry from each of their perspectives to help improve your health from today. This week, I'm delighted to share with you my conversation with Dr. Chris George. Chris is an NHS doctor, director of the British Society of Lifestyle Medicine, and today we discuss how the pandemic has affected our physical and mental health. So, without further ado, Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It is my absolute pleasure, and it has been a long time coming. What, a year and a half, I think, when we first met? Yeah, I think so. You know, it was so funny when we first met because I was first told about you through our mutual friend, Rupi. And then I think not long after that, lockdown happened. And then we met each other just on the street outside that woman's house. Do you remember she was singing? Or clap for carers on a Wednesday night. Yeah. Or Thursday. Yeah, Yeah, we randomly bumped into each other and uh, started chatting, didn't we? Yeah. It was crazy because I was like, I remember being awkwardly stood behind you with my partner and being like, I'm pretty sure that's that's Chris. <laughs> he was like, Are you sure? It'd be really weird if it is. And I was like, No, I think it is. I meant to I meant to email him yesterday. I'm gonna say hi. And it was. Yeah. It was so strange. Yeah, it was great to connect with you though. It was a strange uh, street. How was it like a karaoke lady stood at the front of our house, opening the windows? Um, she put a mic on and the sound the sound system and she was just singing to the street and everyone was having a bit of a party. It was uh, <laughs> one of the best things in lockdown. Yeah, for sure. It's certainly um, something I'll remember out of that whole time period. It was brilliant. And it, and it got us to meet in person, which is great also. Um, exactly. So for, pe- for people who are not familiar with you or your work, it might be good to dive into your background first and how you got where you are today. Yeah, sure. So, um, so I work as a GP, and I've sort of a really interested in lifestyle medicine. So, for the past few years, I've been involved as a director for the British Society of Lifestyle Medicine. So, I've been giving talks, lecturing university students, um, and arranging the uh, specialist interest group in physical activity, which is something that I'm really passionate about: is increasing exercise in people. Mm-hmm. Um, I also bring that into my clinic where I see patients in the NHS, so which is a um, full-time NHS GP. Um, and I look at how we can improve uh, chronic disease, i.e. reverse it in some cases or improve management using lifestyle medicine techniques. And that for me is looking at things like nutrition, exercise, stress reduction, and also sleep. And we sort of have that conversation clinic um, over several consultations and see how we can build that in people's uh, management plans alongside traditional medicines um, that people need of course because I think sometimes it gets a bit of a reputation that you can swap lifestyle medicine for medications but in some cases people do need medications so it's also important that people take their medications but we also look at what we can adjust and improve in their life as well. Um, I'm also a spokesperson for the Healthcare Workers Foundation which is a charity. It was set up during the pandemic by some friends of mine from university and they basically it's basically a charity for NHS workers formed by NHS workers as well and it looks at how at the beginning of the pandemic it provided extra PP for people and now what it's doing is it's created a bereavement fund so people who have sadly lost their lives during the pandemic healthcare workers they've now created a bereavement fund for the family so they can apply for 
additional funding, which will help with bills, helps for children in the bereaved, um, with tuition fees, accommodation, and also counselling and extra support. So it's a really great uh, charity that I've been involved in. Um, and it's doing some amazing work, both for um, bereaved families as well as NHS workers who are currently on the front line. That sounds absolutely amazing. I'll be sure to link to that in the show notes for, for everyone who's interested, and including me. I'll be checking that out straight after this recording. Um, you mentioned you were into lifestyle medicine and nutrition. What brought you into that space to begin with? Yeah, it's a really good question. So initially what I started off doing was I was actually a surgical trainee in London. So I was, I was doing burns and plastics. I was busy on call. I was running around. Um, and actually my own experience of being so busy... I wasn't able to put in practice a lot of the stuff I knew that I should be doing for myself. So I was too tired after on calls to do a lot of exercise and I was, I didn't have the time to prepare food or to eat healthily during the day. So I was so busy. I was kind of, I was operating a lot of the time. So over my lunch breaks, I'd run to the, run to the nearest ca- uh, canteen or cafeteria, grab something, which nine times out of 10 wasn't the healthiest, but it was just quick. It was what I could get my hands on at that time. So I think that was my own, my own health in many ways. And then also looking at patients when I was busy on call, I was being bleeped for the war to go see patients who had diabetes and looking at their blood sugars and they were high. But I didn't actually have the time to sit there and speak to them about the cause of why their blood sugar might be high and how we can look at improving things. And also the patients weren't aware that what they were eating was impacting their blood sugar control. And when you're on a vascular ward and you're looking at people who are having their toes amputated because of complicated with the diabetes and you're sort of amputating higher and higher and higher up the leg and the patients don't quite understand the root cause of their problems it kind of made me think I would like to be able to take that step back see patients and have that discussion and provide the education so that we can actually reverse diabetes before it gets to that point where people are having parts of their body chopped off because of complications yep and and like for you and me and other healthcare professionals in this space, we know that that is, that is something that we can do, right? We can intervene early and stop it from ever progressing. But still, I think for, for most of the public and patients, they're not sure they can do that or they're not sure mm-hmm. that's even a possibility. So having people like you on the front line um, educating people, I think is so, so important. And it's really important that we catch them before they even go on to develop in diabetes because no one wakes up and then has diabetes so you get to that point where it's, they become pre-diabetic and then they sort of sort of progress along that trajectory of diabetes so actually as a doctor or as healthcare workers if we can get people before they become diabetic so in that pre-diabetic stage provide education support and i think that's our, probably our best point to intervene and to actually look at what we can do to reverse diabetes so they don't go on to develop all these complications and you touched upon something really important, I think, before, which is like the identification that medications are needed in certain circumstances, but lifestyle interventions can certainly work for others. Um, and I think you touched upon diabetes, which is a common, um, I guess, scenario or condition that I, I say a lot in terms of like where we can intervene early. And there's certain other chronic conditions as well, or even like potential risk factors like cholesterol or high blood pressure, which can lifestyle interventions can have massive effects on right and it's just like telling people that this is possible and you obviously medications might be needed in some instances but you can also help dramatically with these interventions yeah that's that's really true and when i'm speaking to patients in clinic and they i've actually seen like a, a lot of them do want to try and get away with not taking medication so we have that discussion 
when that that, that early stage as to whether or not medication is the way forward or if they want to try a period of lifestyle intervention. And then we can always reassess at that point. Um, whereas before, I think there was more of this attitude of I'll just take medication, whatever the doctor tells me. Whereas we're kind of going to that point where patients are opting to go for more lifestyle related choices because actually we know that medications come with side effects. And yes, as we said, it is important where appropriate to take the medication mm -hmm. where they benefit away the risk but actually every medication i prescribe as a doctor has side effects whatever that medication might be so if we can go for lifestyle changes then actually that's a way better sort of option for people going forward yeah and i guess when we talk about lifestyle as well we need to consider that it's not just like talking about like your your what you eat and exercise but also the sleep's hugely important stress is massively mm -hmm. important and even like relationships i remember reading a study i was like a year and a half ago so don't quote me on this but i remember looking at loneliness being one of the greatest predictors of of risk of dying early or something it was like an increased risk of mortality within certain age bracket and and i was like this is mind-blowing <laughs> you'd think it was a certain type of condition but loneliness was up there as one one of the greatest risk factors and it means like a sense of community and just like maintaining relationships is incredibly important as well something which i wouldn't even thought of thought of five years ago yeah and i think loneliness um as gp um, it affects everyone it affects young people uh, as well as old people and during the lockdown and pandemic it's one of those things that it was really hard to manage for people because people were quite lonely um, and lost their routines and lost their social networks and support. So I was seeing patients and it was very difficult, especially for the elderly patients who were normally going to various day centres um, throughout the week and meeting other people. When they lived by themselves and spend the majority of the day alone, it was very difficult to um, actually find other options for them because a lot of them weren't able to use technology like a lot of those young people are able to use like iPhones and FaceTime and all that kind of stuff. It was about trying to create how, how as a GP, I was looking at how can I actually improve people's social exposure and reduce loneliness when they weren't able to meet face to face. And that was a real big challenge. How did you overcome that? Or is it even possible? So in terms of overcoming it, it was about reaching out to what we call social prescribers. So every area, within the United Kingdom has a link worker and that link worker is known is able to social prescribe so they can find things in the area to help people so other than medications so I was able to refer a few of my patients to the social uh, link that we had um, to see whether or not there was anything in terms of social prescribing that could help that person the other thing that I did was just encourage people to speak to their family pick up the phone and involve family and friends over sort of telephone um, because Actually, a lot of people were able to use phones, whether but not sort of FaceTime or advanced technology. Yeah. I, okay, that makes a lot of sense. And I guess, like, even though Zoom and FaceTime are great, they don't replace, like, in-person interaction, right? I've noticed this more so where I think I depend on nonverbal cues way more than I ever thought I did. And I only know that through being, like, isolated, having to, well all of us had to at one point isolate at home basically in social distance. And I realized that you can't have those one-to-one -one conversations when you're in a group of people on Zoom, right? <clears throat> normally you'll have those like offshoots where you'll be speaking to one person. And I'm not normally the person to kind of talk to a group of people 
I kind of talk to people individually. And I found mm -hmm. that really difficult, but I only realized that because of lockdown, right? And I assume many people are the same, I'm not sure. Yeah, I think we've all had to kind of adapt our, the way that we communicate, the way we interact with people as a result of lockdown. And even though we're kind of out of these measures, I think a lot of people are still having to, they've also changed the way that they work and communicate still because we're not, we're not where we were pre-pandemic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, sorry, say again. A lot of us aren't going back to the office or working two or three days in the office and two or three days from home. So I think the way that our lifestyles are, it has changed uh, following the pandemic. And I'm not sure we're necessarily going to go back to where it was before anytime soon. Yeah, I completely agree with you there. I think you're right. And COVID-19 seems to have affected everyone, but everyone's different you know so some a person said this to me i think it was someone i work with saying that we're all going covid 19 is like a storm and we're all in this storm together on the sea but some people have got big ships some people have got small ships and some people will capsize and that's just how it is so everyone's dealing with it slightly mm -hmm. differently even though we're all dealing with the same problem how has it affected you um specifically your work as a gp and your practice in general with your patients yeah, so our work has really changed. From the beginning of the pandemic, we're seeing everyone face to face. And then overnight, we had to change the way that we're working. We moved to a telephone-based triage service a lot more. So, so we weren't seeing patients as much face to face. We were still working and offering consultations throughout the pandemic. But the way that we work changed. So we were, telephone, we were telephoning patients. We're seeing patients on video. Things like skin lesions where appropriate, we were having a look at photos rather than bringing people in to minimise the risk of COVID amongst patients that were in the surgery. And in many ways, we still haven't changed from that model very much. We're still triaging the majority of our patients over the phone and bringing those patients that we need to see face to face. Um, and that's really been the main sort of change in terms of our practice. I'm seeing a lot more demand following the pandemic now for uh, for appointments from patients. I think there's, there's a huge backlog of almost 6 million operations in the, in the NHS at the moment. And that backlog of patients accessing hospital care is also having a knock-on effect on general practice. So I'm finding that actually our clinics are so busy, there are more patients than we can possibly see. Uh, we're offering so many more appointments. We did all our usual jobs, plus offer the vaccination service alongside. Um, we didn't stop our clinics to do the vaccination. We did everything together so a lot of my colleagues have been working very hard for coming up two years and we're juggling so many different things at the moment and the demand is just going up and up um, and it really does impact us when we want to be able to offer lots of appointments every day and see everyone but we just simply can't because we don't have the number of gps that we had before um, so our retention of gps has gone down the number of people the number of full-time gps are, has also decreased so we just don't have the number of staff that we would like to have in general practice to offer the appointments. So it's been really tough. That sounds incredibly difficult and something I wouldn't wish upon any profession, but especially GPs, which are hugely, hugely important. When you said there was an increase in appointments, do you think that's more due to people maybe not seeing you over the pandemic and then 
booking in afterwards or maybe they're not going to A&E and then waiting and then coming to you and trying to book an appointment after COVID. What, what do you think the issue is here? Why the increase? I think it's a mixture of all those points that you've mentioned. I think a lot of people waited till after the pandemic. We had that message, set at home, protect the NHS. So a lot of people put off seeing the GP. And when we look at things like cancer numbers, we know that overall the number of people presenting with cancers that we'd normally refer on has decreased from the pandemic. So my worry is that there's a lot of people at home, maybe who haven't come forward since the pandemic with symptoms, which may be a cancer. And we know that early detection, diagnosis and treatment improves outcomes for, in terms of cancer survival. So what we what the government is trying to do at the moment and GPs is we're trying to increase the awareness of this so that people who maybe didn't come forward, we're trying to encourage them to come forward so that we can investigate them and hopefully um, reduce any sort of risk in terms of um, from, from cancers in terms of mortality um, so that we can improve survival. That is hugely important. And I'm just rattling my brain here because wasn't there an issue with like cardiac services as well being like decreased? The amount of people presenting with heart attacks was less during the pandemic. And that's maybe not because the instances of heart attacks were less, but the fact that they weren't just going to hospital. Yeah, and the same with strokes as well. The numbers were down during the pandemic. So people were possibly, the data was possibly suggesting that people were staying at home rather than presenting to hospitals, which um, you know, it is important with these people need to present urgently if they have any signs, symptoms of heart or um, strokes. Okay, really good to know. Um, I imagine, I mean, for everyone, I think COVID was hard on everyone's mental health, essentially. But for healthcare professionals who are on the front line, working extra hours all the time, the pandemic must have been extremely hard, harder for you guys than most. Um, what was the general feeling from colleagues during this time and how was morale? Yeah, so I think I was really proud of all my colleagues. I think we all rallied around, everyone did extra shifts. My work changed quite a lot. So I was based in general practice. What we did is we spoke about change as well overnight. And then we're also doing out of hours work. So going to care homes, people's homes, seeing them face to face still, also operating the NHS 111 um, and also working in urgent care centres to provide that extra level of care and support for people um, with COVID. And then through the pandemic, we've also offered the vaccine, which came a little bit later on. So again, our work changed to offer an initial service so that the country could be vaccinated to get us out of the pandemic. And now we're just kind of trying our best to get through the extra workload that's come from the increased demand from patients um, and also the backlog from secondary care. So trying to offer more appointments where we can, see as many people on a day-to-day basis was trying to keep things safe um, and trying to make it all as easy for patients and staff as well. In terms of health and well-being during this time, because you, you've just listed a lot of things you and your colleagues are getting involved in, um, it goes above and beyond the call of duty, one would argue. Um so how did you cope with any coping mechanisms or strategies that, to make sure you don't burn out, I guess? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. So for me, the way that I managed stress was to, with all the gyms and everything locked down, I actually took up running. So I ran around Clapham Common uh, near to where I live. <laughs> actually, I've run around it so many times that now following all the lockdowns, I just can't bring myself to actually <laughs> run around the common because it, 
flashbacks of lockdown and trying to keep fit. Um, so I always tried to remain physically active myself um, and also not being too hard on yourself. I think you could kind of say, oh, I shouldn't be doing this or I shouldn't eat that, but actually making sure that I was eating a good, healthy diet, but also allowing myself treats um, where, where possible um, is also important. And then looking after sleep as well is a big thing. So make sure that not having too many late nights and keeping a good routine, even though work and everything around you is changing. Yeah. Uh, those are all absolutely wonderful. I actually, um, I, I ran around Clapham Common as well during lockdown, but Battersea Park is my favourite park to run around. I absolutely love it. Um, I can still m- just about manage to run around that park <laughs> to this day. Clapham Common, I think I'll, I'll, I'll let it go. <laughs> I I too overdid it. Um, but I've met you. You obviously take very good care of yourself. I mean, how the hell did you cope when the gyms closed? That's a really good question. I actually try workouts, um, but for me, the home workouts weren't great. I didn't quite get into them. I didn't really enjoy them, if I'm being honest with you. I did maybe two home workouts. I think the second one, I live on a first floor flat in London. It's like, it's one bedroom. So I don't really have the space to be throwing around gym equipment or have running machines or anything um, high tech. So I used a dumbbell and had a few weights with me. And I did actually try one workout with Rupee. And I was in my living room doing burpees. I just heard something in the kitchen next door. And I went around and I saw that some of my plants had fallen off the shelves. So (laughs) 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 that was maybe a bit too heavy to be doing burpees in my living room. So I basically moved all my gym equipment and put it in the back of my car. And I went to Clapham Common and created a bit of an outdoor exercise program. Um, And also my CrossFit box was offering Zoom classes, which I did outside. So... It was actually really good to move my workouts outdoors and it was summer, so it was quite, quite nice environment to be outside in sunshine, getting my vitamin D and working out. Yeah, exactly. So you're working out, getting your vitamin D and also fresh air, being in nature. You're just smashing it, <laughs> ticking all the boxes there. In hindsight, like, would you have looked after yourself a little bit differently during that time? Good question. <laughs> My honest <laughs> answer that would have been yes. I think I would have uh, definitely looked after myself differently. I think in terms of diet, I could have maybe been a bit more careful in some of the things I was doing because I found that actually my usual practice um, in terms of eating, there were long queues a lot of the time for food. So I was having to buy food on the go um, at the beginning of the pandemic because when I was going to the shops, there was actually no food in the supermarkets. I remember one shift that I did. I went to work and I saw people wheeling shopping trolleys of food past me as we were going to the practice in the morning. So by the time I came out, I'd go to the shops and all the shelves were completely empty. It looked like <laughs> I've never seen anything like it. It just was completely ransacked. So those days I was having to eat out, buy food on the go. I think maybe I could have made a few healthier options at that point or healthy choices, shall I say. And I think I've, I, meditation for me is something that I always try. It's definitely something that I work on and takes a lot of effort. It's not something that comes naturally to me. So I think work on maybe meditation, relaxation techniques would have been or could have been a bit more beneficial through lockdown. It's quite hard to fit in a full day's work, maybe the outer hours afterwards, after finishing GP, and then go straight to bed. You're quite wired. I drive to work. It was about 40-minute, 50-minute drive to work. So by the time I was driving back, it was early hours in the morning. So actually, I could have probably built in a bit of meditation to kind of prepare myself 
to sleep because sometimes I found myself lying in bed till for another few hours and by that point it's two three in the morning or sometimes waking up early in the morning um just I think just the adrenaline of having to get back to work in the front line and dealing with COVID that sounds seriously tough man I mean when you spoke about food I definitely put on a few lockdown pounds for sure um, I think comfort eating was like <laughs> was something I went to, right? You were just like, do you fancy this? Yep. I maybe had a little bit too much red wine during the week. That was like mm-hmm. our coping mechanisms, right? And looking back on it, like at the time, we didn't think we were doing anything bad. But I think just gradually our habits, our healthy habits slipped, um, as I think many people had that as well. Um, and when you... Yeah, t- sorry, go on. That's definitely what happened to me. I think I didn't see a lot of my healthy habits slipping. I should have probably known, I think, having embarked on a donut course over lockdown, I think that should have been a red flag to me that made my healthy habits. <laughs> They're great donuts. I made them this day. And uh, I think just moderation next time. <laughs> yeah, that's quite funny. Yeah, a donut course. You're talking about healthy eating and making the right decisions and preparing food, and then you're like, yeah, I've just yeah. Uh, <laughs> focused on donut recipes. <laughs> I love it. I love it. We must share recipes. Um, but um, I was going to say, when you spoke about mental health, um, I also had this similar issue. I was working during during the pandemic, and going to sleep at night was incredibly difficult and what I found was we were doing um I have headspace um no affiliation by the way just for everyone who's listening but um I recommend headspace and calm are two of the apps that I've used um and I, I really like them both but what I found was if I was if I really needed to meditate and this sounds so counterintuitive but when I really needed to meditate I do like a 10 minute meditation and realized that didn't work like I didn't pay attention at all to the guided meditation and just have to do it again and what I've realized when I, when I feel like I'm quite calm in general, when I do the 10 minute meditation, sometimes I nod off halfway through. So the times when you're really stressed and you least want to do the meditation are the times when you should do double the, the amount. That's what I've realized. Um, yeah, I think the same goes for exercise as well. It's always for me one of the first things that kind of slips when my diary gets a bit busy or get stressed exercise falls out of the way, but actually it's probably the time you need most alongside meditation. Um, and all the other healthy habits, I think we kind of build up throughout the year. Yeah, couldn't agree with you more. You, right, you like CrossFit. So over lockdown, I found this woman called Caroline Gervin. Gervin, okay. Gervin. Um, and they've just brutal at-home workouts. Honestly, absolutely brutal. I did a 20-minute leg workout the other day, and that's not a long time to exercise, but my legs were so sore. And I was like, this woman is just a mess. I don't know how she's doing it, um, but I'll need to send you her. I need, I need to find out what you think. You'll probably be like, Ben's a wimp. These are easy. Um, After leg day, it's always going down and up by the stairs or down into a car. It always gets you. Yeah, or sitting down to do your business on the toilet. Either either of those, it becomes an issue. <laughs> um, but when we talk about mental health, are there any uh, key tips or resources that you'd recommend people look at if they ever struggle with these kinds of things that you and me spoke about before? Yeah, so I think the first thing to say is just reaching out for help. Yeah. If you have any mental health problems, because... A lot of people, sometimes the hardest thing to do, and I've seen people over the last 
sort of year, two years of lockdown who struggled through lockdown and before that, and they've never reached out for help. And it's had a huge impact on their lives, how they've been feeling, and they've kind of just struggled in silence. And there's really no reason to do that. There's lots of support out there. Reach out to friends, family members, or your GP as well. Um, and as a GP, I can put people in contact with what we call talking therapies, counselling. It's all anonymous as well and confidential. So if you don't feel that you can speak with a friend or family member, absolutely no problem. We can also send you the details of the services available in your area to talk to. As you've also mentioned, meditation is really important. Calm Headspace has some great apps as well that I direct people to. I think a lot of people struggle with sleep as well when they're sort of stressed, anxious, depressed. So the apps actually have sleep functions. So I know that Headspace has one. Mm-hmm. So you can actually look at that and try the Head Headspace sleep series and that also has some good, um, some good results. You can also talk about things like sleep hygiene. So things that you could do at home to improve sleep and these include things like bedtime routine, your environment at home. So your blinds, looking at your bed linen and taking a bit of a 360 approach to sleep. I think that's also really important. Um, physical activity we know is great for mental health. I think there's even been some studies that have shown that exercise can be as effective as medication for mild to moderate depression. So that's another big thing that I encourage people to do is get active. And also getting outside on a daily basis, it doesn't have to be for exercise every day. It can just be a walk with a friend, family member, or the dog, just getting outside in some green space into nature actually does wonders for mental health. Yeah, there's a there's a word for that, isn't there? Like called forest bathing. I think it's like, uh, sh- like Shorinyoku or Shinrinyoku. I will yeah, I find think out. I doesn't it from the Japanese, Japanese culture where they go into forests and they sort of forest bathe and hug trees and um, it helps in terms of mental health and it's something that's becoming more and more popular in the UK. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately for us, we're in London, so like our spaces are parks and they're normally full of people. <laughs> <laughs> and, and cars going around outside and dogs chasing you. <laughs> yeah, um, but you know, it's certainly better than nothing. That is for sure. And some of them are very beautiful. Um, so I shouldn't be, you know, I'm, I'm, we're probably spoiled. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's not the countryside. Um, and I loved your points as well. And I couldn't agree with them. Couldn't agree with them more. Um, it made me think, you know, there's this, there's this weird interconnectivity between um, physical inactivity and obesity and risks increased risk of covid or severe outcomes from covid um and what i found interesting and this is just me thinking about it today in preparation for this podcast is like because of lockdowns most people gained weight and most people became less physically active and therefore putting ourselves at greater risk and i know there was a reason why we did it i'm not saying it was a bad decision or anything like that but it was just an interesting observation that i had which was like something which we maybe didn't think about to begin with. Yeah, I think it's something that we have to look at in terms of how can we improve physical activity? How can we go back to some old habits and routines? And it, I mean, from personal experience as well, it is difficult having a year, year and a half off whatever exercise you've been doing to then go back to it, even if you have trained for many years before then. It's tough. So it's about finding ways to actually get back into that sort of exercise that you're doing and 
whether you start gradually, there's loads of different apps that people use. We have Couch to 5K, which is really good that I recommend to patients. Also Better NHS and also local uh, services that you can speak to your GP about that improve physical activity. Even through social prescribing, you can, or some GPs can prescribe things like gym memberships for people. So it really is about just reaching out and having a look what's in your area and speak to your GP and how they can support you in terms of getting physical activity back to where it was before. Yeah, I couldn't, couldn't agree more with that. I read a study in, it was in, it showed the link between obesity and physical activity, but it seemed like, um, sorry, let me repeat that. Earlier this year in April, there was a study released, I believe in the BMJ, um, or the British Journal of Sports Medicine, which I believe is linked to the BMJ. And it showed that increasing physical activity reduced the, sever the severity of COVID-19 outcomes in infected mm -hmm. adults, which I thought was hugely interesting. And above and beyond just how physical activity and eating well, et cetera, and living a healthy lifestyle reduces the severity from COVID from the published studies, actually reduces your risk from basically every other condition. So like there's so much more reason to do it. It's just, I know there's like a, a slew of evidence now coming out of like how to reduce severity from COVID, but bigger picture, it doesn't just reduce your severity from COVID. It reduces your severity or your risk of cancers, cardiometabolic diseases, diabetes, all these other elements as well. Um, and I think, although I've purposefully focused on COVID now, it just made me think that we need to, to look at the bigger picture and be like, look, this will help you now, but also in the future. And I think that's more of a motivation for people to get involved in these kinds of things and help them get those or reintroduce those healthy habits. Yeah, I think following COVID, a lot of people have found that healthy habits have slipped a little bit. So what I'm seeing is lots of people calling up, how do I lose weight? Can you refer to the weight management program? Do you have any exercise tips? How can I control my blood pressure a bit better? I think people are realising that actually having a healthy lifestyle also impacts a lot of chronic conditions, as you've mentioned. Uh, so people are really keen to make some changes to their life. Yeah. Absolutely. And the, through the um, public health collaboration, but do you know Dr. David Unwin? I don't know. Low carb GP. Um, mm -hmm. So he's a general practitioner, but he, he did this kind of out of hours clinic um, where he introduced a low carbohydrate diet for people with type 2 diabetes and prediabetes. And he published um, a research paper along with um, some colleagues at NEDPRO, which I'll link in the, in the show notes for everyone, um, showing that it, it was hugely beneficial in reducing medications and blood pressure and weight and cholesterol and all these other parameters as well. And it's just absolutely fascinating that you can do this long-term through a GP clinic. So I think what you're doing is spectacular and it just shows there's so many avenues in order to benefit patient health. Yeah, definitely. With the... Um, you spoke about social prescribing before. Is there a link I can uh, put in the show notes for people? Uh, I'm not sure there's a link as such. Uh, what I would suggest is that if you have any um, questions about your local social prescribing, because it does vary up and down the country, best thing to do is just speak to your GP and they can then put you in touch with your social link prescriber and you can have that conversation with them. Awesome. I had another question. There's been this weird disparity and i think there's many reasons why this could be the case but with different 
ethnic groups and how they've been affected by COVID-19. Um, what has been your experience in this regard? Um, it's a good question. So I've seen a mixture of different things throughout the pandemic in terms of health inequalities. I think the most recent thing that I'm seeing is um, probably vaccine hesitancy is still a big issue. There's a lot of different demographics of patients that I look after who aren't keen to have the vaccine, even with all the campaigns, public health messaging. Uh, some people may just have the one vaccine and have had side effects from it in terms of mild flu-like symptoms. But because they've had those symptoms, they've then not to go for the second one or change their mind for whatever reason. Um, and that's been a big problem because actually some of the people that need the vaccine most in terms of the demographics aren't coming forward for the vaccine. And that can have a huge impact in terms of your overall morbidity and mortality from COVID-19. Right, that's hugely interesting. And, you, and you're looking at these demographics and you think there's certain, um, for lack of a better word or terminology, BAME groups? Or would you like to, me to refer to that group in another way? Yeah, so different ethnic minorities have got different um, uptakes in terms of the vaccine. Um, and they tend to be lower, especially amongst black African populations. And that also then, um, we know from the public health uh, research that they did during the pandemic that actually um, black African people have um, worse mortality rates from COVID-19. So we need to be looking at what we can do to help support the uptake of vaccines amongst different communities. Right, okay. And th there was a really interesting um, paper, oh, well, a there's been many papers now, I think over 50 studies associating vitamin D um, status with mm -hmm. increased risk of COVID-19. Are you familiar with this research at all? So at the start of the pandemic, the research came out mainly from patients who were in intensive care and they were found to have low vitamin D levels. So the recommendation was to take vitamin D because we know that it has a role within immunity. Um, so it was hypothesized that actually, if you take vitamin D, it may help your immunity when it comes to COVID-19. Right, that, that makes perfect sense. I mean, I remember I, there's a couple of websites now, but there's one called like vdmeta.com, which is like a, like a, an ongoing meta-analysis of research papers. It's quite cool to look at. I am not that statistically savvy that I can check what they've done, but it looks pretty promising in my eyes. Um, it'd be interesting to see what you think after the podcast. Um, for sure. But I know we're coming up on time. Um, so going back to nutrition, because we touched upon it a little bit with regards to what we shouldn't be eating, kind of the processed junk foods, don't eat too many donuts was always in there. <laughs> what have you found that works with your patients and yourself with regards to like good nutrition? Yeah, so nutrition is one of those topics that is quite complex and it just really does vary. So what I've seen just depends on even where I'm working. I've worked in Surrey where I did my GP training to begin with. And there actually, in terms of knowledge of nutrition, it's higher than in some places I've worked in London. So I've also worked in Lambeth, which is one of the poorest areas of London. And actually, the, people's knowledge about nutrition, what constitutes a healthy diet, um, just isn't the same. So actually, what people eat does vary hugely depending on whereabouts in the country they are. 
So in terms of what constitutes a healthy diet, making sure that you have at least five portions of fruit and veg in diet per day, an increased amount of fiber, and that tends to come from plants. Also look at protein sources, trying to keep the protein lean. And people tend to say that actually occasional red meats are better than having regular processed red meat in terms of risk of things like bowel conditions, including bowel cancers. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more with that. I mean, for me, it's just a, an emphasis on a whole unprocessed foods. Um, and I feel like everything just kind of sorts itself out. I leverage protein quite highly, but I think that's just because I'm active mm-hmm. and it tends to blunt my appetite more so than other foods, right? But just like whole unprocessed foods, I tend to reduce my intake of grains. This is my personal thing um, because I overeat them. <laughs> so like white rice, I could just eat for days, bread also. Um, so it just doesn't, it doesn't help me. Um, so I kind of, I'm not saying they're bad foods, just for me personally, I know I overeat those foods. So I, I, I have to lower my intake of them. And if I don't have them in the house, then I won't eat them. Um, but I was conscious over lockdown that kind of the flowers and rice and things of that nature, I can just eat bowls full of white rice and it just not fill me up. It was, <laughs> <laughs> even if it's white basmati rice, it just has a lower glycemic index, etc. So, um, yeah, really need to be be careful on that front. But for the vast majority of people, I think you abs hit the nail on the head, right? Focus on like fruits and vegetables, lean proteins, etc. It's key. Yeah, and what you said is completely, I completely agree with. Also, trying to get food that's maybe locally sourced mm-hmm. um, and hasn't transported from over a long period of time is also important. Yeah, I I hugely agree with you there. You know what? Over just before lockdown, my partner's sister helped us do like a plastic free week. So we we basically shopped from bulk food um, bulk food suppliers. So everything was in brown paper bags or we bought our own Tupperware or glass mason jars and filled up everything. So like lentils, beans, etc. ate vegan, completely non-plastic. The thing which I realized, which is so hard to do, is to get green leafy greens without any plastic involved, they always come in plastic bags. And I just don't know any way of getting them in my diet without having them coming in plastic. I mean, you could try growing them yourself. Uh, But it's part of the legends in London. I think they get covered in probably petrol fumes or stuff. Exactly, (laughs) yeah. Well, yeah, you raise a good point. Maybe we should have a little garden or allotment. I'm sure that when there's a will, there's a way. but yeah, I haven't explored that just yet. Um, yeah, I have on Instagram some very cool Instagram accounts doing urban gardening and urban vegetables and some really cool kind of innovative ideas on how to grow your own produce at home when you live in a big city. Might be worth just checking out. Well, you know what? Since you've mentioned them, I'll link to them in the show notes for people that are interested. And then they can get a little bump up as well in terms of their followers um, if they're doing a good thing. That sounds good. And probably will help me out as well. And I'll just have be growing kale and my lettuces out on my, outside my windowsill. So, yeah, watch this space. <laughs> <laughs> so I know we're coming up on time. Um, but before you go, I ask three questions to everyone that comes on the show. With the first being... What is the most impactful health change that you have made in your life and why? 
I think the most impactful change that I've made is looking at my work environment. So changing from uh, surgery into general practice has had the biggest impact on my health. It's allowed me to manage my stress levels, give me a bit more work-life balance. Mm -hmm. I sleep better. I can train regularly and exercise. So overall, it's had the biggest impact on my life is actually finding a work that allows me, a type of work that allows me to live the healthiest possible uh, version of my life that I can. Love that. And number two is, how can healthcare become more integrated with the kind of modalities that we spoke about today? And I guess in this instance, focusing on physical and mental health and well-being. Yeah, so I think if we can mirror maybe some of the principles that we find in blue zones, which are basically pop areas of the world where they have increased longevity. So people live to sort of 100 plus and apparently the healthiest and happiest people in the world. And some of those things include increased connectivity. So knowing your friends, family around you, having increased support, making sure that your food is locally sourced, that you're getting good amounts of exercise, stress reduction, those kind of principles. I think if we look at those areas and see how we as a Western world can actually bring some of those into our own communities would be a great way of starting. So how can we actually increase the amount of services within our community? How can we get to know each other better? How can we support one another? Um, so that we're all the healthiest and happiest versions of ourselves, I think is really important. So that would be my kind of suggestion is actually working on a kind of community level to improve our health. And I've got one more question for you, but before I ask it, can you please tell the listeners where they can find you and what exciting projects you have coming up? Yeah, thank you so much. So you can find me on my Instagram page and website. It's Dr. Chris George. Um, and in terms of side projects, I've got various blogs coming out. I've also got provide lots of information on Instagram, a podcast that I'm doing, and also various TV work that I've got coming up in the, the next sort of year. So 2022, they're going to be coming out. So I'm excited to be able to share them, which I'll probably share on my Instagram platform. Amazing. Look forward to seeing that. Um, and the last question, can you please provide the listeners with three quick tips to help improve their health and well-being from today? So my first top tip would be looking at uh, your routine before bed. So now before bed, making sure that you actually incorporate something that's going to help you to relax, avoiding your phone, screen time, so you're able to get a good night's sleep. So tip number two would be meal prep. So looking at what healthy foods you can take with you to work, because I think a lot of us are quite busy on a day-to-day -day basis. So it avoids the kind of need of picking up food on the go, which tends to be a bit unhealthy. Mm -hmm. Tip number three would be to make time in your schedule to see uh, friends and family members so making sure that you're connected uh, with the loved ones and support around you love that number three is definitely something i think i need to work on that a little bit more on a regular basis but yeah love those three chris it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you my friend um it was a long time coming and i'm so glad we got the chance to do it yeah thank you so much for having me on your podcast and for all the work that you do ben Thank you for listening to the Functional Health Podcast. You can find links to everything that we talked about today in the show notes. If you have a second, please consider leaving a five-star rating on iTunes. It really does make a huge difference and helps get this valuable information out and reach more people. 
Don't forget to subscribe so you can stay up to date and know whenever I release a new episode. You can connect with us on Instagram, Facebook or our website and all questions are welcome. As always, thanks to Joss Aurelia for all the editing and thank you all for your support.